Hello and welcome to the Balcony View podcast. I'm your host, Katie Churchman, and in this episode, I'm talking with Mark Ovland about the ways of looking approach, a framework for meditation. What if your deepest happiness and freedom had less to do with what happens and more to do with how you're relating to what happens? Across this conversation, we explore the ways of looking framework as developed by the late Rob Bedea. We discuss the impacts different lenses have on our lives and explore how they affect our perception of the world. For instance, whether it brings more ease, freedom and joy into our experience and how this approach can create more flexibility, expansion and empathy in our lives. Mark began practicing meditation in 2008 and is currently training to teach within the Buddhist insight meditation tradition. He has lived and worked in various monasteries and retreat centres across India and the UK and has spent around two years on intensive silent retreats himself. Mark helped to pioneer mindfulness courses within the UK prison system and was one of the co-founders of Freely Given Retreats, a charity that runs week-long silent meditation retreats on a donation basis. In 2013, he and some friends set up Dance, the Dharma Action Network for Climate Engagement. And in recent years, he has been particularly engaged with environmental and social justice issues. Mark was a co-student of the late meditation master, Rob Bedea. This was a fascinating conversation, and I'm excited to share both the ways of looking approach with you all, and also Mark Ovland, who has an amazing way of breaking down complex meditation concepts into digestible and relatable chunks. So without further ado, I bring you Mark Ovland talking about ways of looking. Mark, welcome to the Balcony View podcast. I am delighted to have you on the show today. Welcome. Thank you, Katie. Delighted to be here. And I know today we're covering a big topic, meditation, specifically the ways of looking approach. And I wonder if we can start by talking about some of the ways meditation has impacted your life, perhaps more in the sort of everyday ways, the the practice that happens off the cushion, you could say. I mean, I guess there's layers to that. There's different levels. Uh, you know, if you were to Google benefits of meditation, then yeah, all of that stuff. I mean, it's um, it's quite well documented. You know, well, to pick out a couple of examples, you know, you always hear meditation helps with stress and less stress. For me, I mean, a different way of, or another way of putting that would be when there's some kind of collectedness in the being, when there's, you know, you've been meditating, there's a bit of stillness generally in one's life, the mind tends to create less problems. It's like, you know, problems aren't inherently real. The mind creates problems out of whatever's you know, in front of us. And I find, having meditated, that the mind just does that less. So there's there's less stress built up engaging with whatever situation and just in a way okay how can i see this in a way that's productive how can i learn from this whatever it is without making it a problem so that's, that's actually quite big is to a more useful life and more presence mindfulness attention it's amazing how the world appears differently you know when speaking for myself when i'm present with it when i'm not off thinking about other stuff and actually you know i'm, I'm with this person in front of me i'm looking into their eyes i'm having a sense of yes here me you it, there's there's something so alive in that, and um, so these sorts of things you know classic benefits of meditation. I think on another level, and this is really kind of where the ways of looking approach comes in that my teacher Rob uh, brought across, 
what meditations really show me is that whatever is in my heart and mind actually changes the experience in front of me. And so, you know, that, that's radical. That's, that's really huge, the ramifications of that. But even on the everyday level, you know, I, I know in, the, in, the, in my bones that if I approach this moment with kindness, with generosity, with love, then my very experience of the world is better, is different than if I were to be, approach it, you know, through a frustrated. When I look through that eyes of kindness, when that's how I'm relating to the world, I have a better experience of life and a better experience of myself, of other people. And that I just know so deeply in my being. And that's what meditation has really shown me. It's like, you know, working on what's inside. It's kind of knowing where the deepest happiness comes from. Like that, that's at the bottom of it. And knowing that it doesn't come from the stuff that I used to think it comes from and society tells us it comes from. It's like there's something so deeply wound up in our hearts and the qualities that we're cultivating in our hearts and in our minds. That is where we find happiness. That's where we find peace, the love. It's in those qualities. And yeah, I think that for me is what I see in my everyday life. And to use your, your word, it does feel radical when you say it like that, because it, it feels like we have more agency in the way we experience our lives. I think so often we sort of expect to get what we get and then that's how we, we feel, that's how we show up that day. But this ways of looking approach, it, it gave me a sense that we can, we can choose more actually which way we look through each day, not just on the cushion when we're meditating, but in our lives. And I wonder if you can um, introduce this approach to people who might be new to it. Certainly I was a couple of months ago and it's been, it's been radical to me. Sure, thanks Katie. Well, it, it, you know, because it's exactly that. We're not, we can find that we're not at the mercy of the world, of the external conditions around us. You know, we, we in our culture, we're brought up to feel like the stuff that happens in our life is what makes us, you know, whatever it is, happy, sad, depressed, joyful, blah, 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 blah. All our inner life and our emotions, we feel are caused by the, the stuff around us, external thing. And what the ways of looking approach shows us is actually all of those, let's just say emotions, the happiness, the sadness, all of that, are more from how we're relating to our experience than from the experience itself. So actually, whatever it is could be happening in front of me, but what's in my heart as I relate to that, and whether I relate to it with openness, with uh, kindness, with generosity, as I said, um, whether I'm kind of contracted in my heart and mind and I look through uh, suspicious eyes, et cetera, et cetera, that actually changes the experience and it gives me a different felt sense. And it can be the difference between, you know, just to put it very crudely, happiness and sadness. So the ways of looking approach kind of acknowledges this and works on cultivating particular ways of looking, particular ways of relating to our experience that create less suffering, less problem, less contraction, more beauty, joy, ease, love, kindness, all of that. So we see that actually, yeah, that we, we really do have a, a, a big, big say in how the world appears to us. We're not at the mercy of, of external conditions. What I love about this is that we know it on one level. I think there are so many psychology studies where they show that if you're researching a new car, you start to see that car everywhere in the street. Suddenly <laughs> your reality has changed because of what you're looking for. And yet, so we know this in certain ways, and yet we don't seem to apply it to perhaps the things that matter most. And maybe we bring a challenges lens to something that doesn't actually have to be challenging at all. 
And yet suddenly we're seeing perhaps a Christmas with the in-laws or <laughs> a birthday party with a, a friend that maybe you're not so close with anymore as a challenge as opposed to something that could bring so much joy and reconnection. Ab absolutely. And, you know, there's a lot about reframing here. I mean, this, this works at all sorts of levels and gets very, very profound. Even at a kind of reframing level, the way I think about this gathering with you know the in-laws or whatever it is, it's like, can, can I just myself reframe that as, you know, whatever it might be, uh, whether it's simply in the service of compassion, like knowing that this is something they would like, I'm putting myself in a position of, of service, of giving, you know, that that's, I'm, I'm in, in a very healthy way, making it about uh, that rather than about kind of me and how I'm going to feel. I just kind of swap it around. And that does something in the heart. It does something in the mind and it makes the experience unfold differently. You know, if I, if I turn up to a, to a gathering with a kind of, I don't want to be here mindset, then what happens in that gathering probably isn't going to be that great. Whereas if I go along, if I've managed to kind of frame in a way that actually my heart's a bit more open, I'm much more likely to have a nice time anyway, like it unfolds in a different way. And I wonder then how the, the brain's negative bias impacts then the, the types of lenses that show up for us on default, because typically we're more negative than positive because historically negative experiences pose a chance of danger. Obviously that mechanism's not so useful to us anymore, but it's still there. Yeah. And do you seem to find that the, the lenses that show up on default for us when we're not paying attention are more negative? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That negativity bias. I mean, I guess, you know, most people in my experience, for instance, have this um, voice of the inner critic. This yeah. saying, you know, it can be pretty constant for a lot of people, berating us, telling us we're not good enough, it should be this way, it should be that way. I mean, really, we could say that's a way of looking. Yeah. You know, that's a particular way of relating to our experience that is default, that feels like it's real. It feels like, no, this is what's going on, and this is me, and this is my voice, and I'm really hopeless. And we were so entrenched in that we, that we failed to see that it's a way of looking that actually just isn't very helpful. And, you know, that's so entrenched. And so it does take a lot of practice to cultivate the, the ways of looking that are more positive, that open up experience in a different way, that treat ourselves, for instance, with self-compassion rather than with criticism. And so, yeah, I mean, it's a practice. It's a lot of work. But if we think, you know, what, what do we want to spend time on in our lives when, when we're on our deathbed, you know, hoping a long time in the future, and we're conscious enough to be reflecting on our past, uh, what is it that would have led to a life well lived? What was it you know, spending time on? And for me, there's something about cultivating these beautiful qualities of heart and mind, creating beautiful perceptions, experiences of the world. It's just priceless. It's like, yeah, that is something worth practicing, worth spending time on. It really makes me think of Viktor Frankl's work around between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our freedom and our growth. And I've sat with that for a long time. But I think this framework, the ways of looking framework has helped me to actualize that a bit more because it gives you in many ways a tool, a toolkit, because obviously there are countless lenses you can look through to then start to apply this to your life, particularly when challenges come along. That's what I found, that when things are particularly challenging, what lens am I defaulting to and actually what lens is going to serve me better? Right, yeah, exactly. It can flesh out Viktor Frankl's words in a particular way. Yeah. That would be this paradigm. And it's exactly that. And, you know, in the, the Buddha, you know, a lot of people would look at his teachings through a kind of medical model. It's like, okay, here's some suffering, here's a problem. Uh, what can I do to alleviate it? Because you know, Buddhism is just... The Buddha said, all I teach is suffering and the end of suffering. It's like, you know, what to do with this 
vehicle ducker in our lives, this disease, this dissatisfaction on whatever level. Um, so absolutely, that's really skillful. It's like, okay, here's some uh, uncomfortableness I'm feeling. How can I adapt my way of looking? How, how can I relate to this experience differently that will allow some dissipation of that contraction, that difficulty? And, that, and that's, it's so empowering. You know, when we see this over and over and over and over again, that, oh, wow, my way of looking, my way of relating really does affect my experience. And there's a confidence that comes in there. And we know that actually, maybe we can learn eventually through practice to, to, to face anything. Whatever comes up in my life, inner, outer, emotional, in my experience, I know that I have the resources, the capacities to uh, hold that in a particular way, to turn it, to, to see it in a certain way that will liberate any kind of um, suffering. And what I find with this practice, and I'm, I'm very new to it, and I'm starting to realise as well, it's it's quite vast in terms of where you can go with this. <laughs> but I've noticed even just applying it to certain conversations. So my husband and I have brought in different lenses, say, to, to conversations that we've been having, particularly conversations that we're well-versed in. And it just opens up a whole different dimension. It expands your reality in some ways. And is that your experience from this, that suddenly your world feels much bigger when you apply different lens to the same old situation? Absolutely. I mean, I think most of us, probably, it's certainly in kind of, in the very commas, the modern Western culture, so not thinking about indigenous peoples, but, you know, us moderns, I think we're kind of stuck in this um, mono, I don't know, mono-dimensional way of looking, way of relating. Like we just see what we see and we think, well, that's the truth. That's the only way that things are. And yes, you know, with my partner, with my spouse, or my child, whatever it is, this is the way they are. And we kind of think we, we know that and we box things in, people, situations. What Ways of Looking has done, exactly as you're pointing to, it just explodes that whole thing open into like a million fragments. It's like, wow, there's... There's infinite dimensions here. Now, the, my, whichever way I look, of, way of looking I take will open up a different way of experiencing this world. And there are infinite ways of looking. And that, that just, for me, it just makes the whole exploration of life and, yeah, relationship, relating with others, so rich, so fertile. It, it just, uh, it's delicious. That's so exciting, isn't it? Because I think so often we end up focusing on the big moments in life. Maybe it's a big holiday or a wedding or an event. And then we sort of dismiss that every day as sort of humdrum and ordinary. And this seems to add a whole different way of living life because I think to use Annie Dillard's quote, how we live our days is how we live our lives. And I think many of us are sleepwalking through a big chunk of life because we're waiting for those exceptional moments and we're missing the sort of everyday ordinary moments. Of course, of course we are. That, that's what we're taught. That's what, what we're taught, you know, where happiness comes from is these you know, incredible experiences. And that's why, you know, we might fly off to the other side of the world, you know, kind of, uh, what's the word, ignoring the devastating effects of climate change because there, there's there's something in us like, no, I need to be happy. And this is how I, this is how I get happiness. And there can be a kind of desperate search uh, for that. And what the Buddha was saying, it's like, yes, there can be some happiness in that for sure, but it won't be long lasting and it won't be that great, you know, compared to what's possible through this cultivation of different uh, qualities in the heart and what that does in my experience, I mean, it's on a whole other level. The experience of contentment, of joy, of peace, of love that I've experienced through my meditation is, it's like nothing you, you find in kind of in experiences, you know, just fun experiences. It's something very different. Yeah, experiences and possessions, which feel to be such a, a focus in some ways uh, in our, our modern lives and 
Yet what you find so often is that people who have, you know, the 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 modern success equation sorted out in terms of money, possessions and experiences don't always seem that happy. <laughs> and that says something, doesn't it? That it's not about always the outward. And I guess this really works with that inner landscape because you could be in the most amazing location on the planet and be having a miserable time if you're not looking through the right lens. And you could also be in perhaps a really miserable place and be having a wonderful time if you're bringing a different lens. Yeah. Is that how you've sort of experienced it yourself in your practice? It really is. It struck me many years ago, 10, 12 years ago, I was living out working at a, a small Buddhist retreat center and there's a, a view down over the river that for me is just spellbinding. It's ju just you know, one of my favorite views in the world. And I was standing out there one day with one of the people on retreat and just commenting on, on how gorgeous this was and she said I just see grey I, ju I just see grey and there, there was a complete um, deadness in, in her in the view in what she was seeing um, and we, we were talking about it afterwards and you know her what was going on for her in her life yeah she, she was uh, not in a great place you know, there was depression there in the mix and it just really struck me in that time it's like wow like, the world really is a different place depending on you know, how, 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 we're, how we're seeing it. But coming back to your point about autonomy, it's an agency. It's like, yes, it's going to take some practice. We can't just snap out of it without practicing this stuff, but we can reach that place where, where it can be relatively quick to change between a way of looking that's just really not helpful to one that really is. And that, that's amazing. That's really amazing. Yeah, it feels like almost putting on different glasses like you're in the, at the opticians and they, they try on the different lenses to see sort of which one's right. And this feels like this approach where you can literally take off some glasses if they're not working and put on some others that maybe brighten the world. And I, I think a lot about my, uh, my husband's grandparents. So my grandparents-in-law, you could say, they are so positive, but in such small and wonderful ways. Um, so... <laughs> Um, Ron, um, my husband's granddad, will talk about his walk. And he's told me about this walk so many times. Ah, oh, it's gorgeous. And I go around the block <laughs> and then I get a sausage roll. And it's a sausage roll from Greg's. It's not a fancy <laughs> sausage roll. But the way he talks about this sausage roll, and I'm a vegetarian, but he pretty much sells it to me. Yeah. You know, it's just this absolute joy in everyday stuff. And I think that's what's kept them so alive and happy and, and vital. And um I really try and take on their lens when I'm with them because it's just such a gorgeous way of living. Beautiful. And so, you know, a lovely example of how, you know, without even coming into contact with these teachings, you can kind of see, yeah, the, the ways of looking that being adopted, you know, maybe unconsciously and by habit, but it's obviously a way of looking that's worked for him. <laughs> it presents the world and, and that's great. And we can, and we can um, be inspired by others and, and see that. And I think there's a, a real case uh, to that. You know, the people that we, hang out with and the kind of maybe default ways of looking that, that they use, it's like, oh, this this person really sees a, a different world than I do. And they seem like, I don't know, really happy and peaceful or whatever. And it does, uh, kind of by osmosis, I think we can pick up other ways of looking. Uh, I mean, I feel at this point, I don't know how deep we want to go with this, but I feel like I need to uh, add into the mix because the, the uh, picture of lenses and the opticians is, is brilliant. And I use that a lot actually when I've thought in the past um, to really bring this idea across and you know different coloured lenses you put on your pink sunglasses and the world appears differently or green or blue etc there's, but there's, there's something I mean all analogies will be limited eventually and there's something that 
I feel does need to be pointed out, which is that if we, if we only keep it at that level of we're putting on different sunglasses, it can feel like uh, there is an objective reality out there and we're kind of choosing to see it differently in ways that will make us feel better, which in itself uh, can be useful. Isn't that radical? And you know, a criticism might come in that actually that's could be dismissive of uh, the harm of the difficulties that that exist because we're just you know putting on our rose tinted glasses and saying oh everything's fine yes but actually it's not in the objective reality and I think you know at, at the basis of Buddhism and this ways of looking approach is the, the idea which we can find out through our own meditation practice uh, the fact we could say that there is no objective reality it's not like there's a world there that we're choosing to look at differently it's that actually the the world is created what we perceive our perception of the world is created through the way of looking it's like the two are inseparable so we using this way of looking creates a certain reality that we perceive and someone else creates a different reality that they perceive but there's there's no uh kind of inverted commas real reality uh, in the middle of that i love that you've landed that point because in some ways now the the glasses analogy feels a bit gimmicky Bang. and it doesn't allow the the practice to go as deep as it it really can and it reminds me of so i used to be an actress and um that got me really interested in storytelling in lots of different ways and i used to sort of and i still hold this idea that we often wait for our lives to happen in order to tell the story but actually the stories we tell ourselves now create our lives and i feel like this very much sits with that it's is the witch is coming first and um I think so often we have this sense of, well, that is reality, but there's also like the whole, um, is the world created within us too? You know, are we in that sort of co-creation with the universe in this approach? And that's a very exciting dance to step into. Absolutely. I'm I'm actually, I won't read it out, but I'm looking in my van at the, I've got the last two paragraphs of my Buddhist teacher's book around all of Mm -hmm. the themes. I've got them framed just on my wall, I, I, they, they touch me so deeply and they speak to exactly this point and how you know, what, what's in our heart and mind really shapes the reality and the reality of um, our perception of the world and vice versa, our perception of the world shapes our, our way of looking. Like the two are in this, this complete dance constantly. Us, the universe, all kind of sh- shaping each other moment by moment. And there's so much malleability in that, so much choice in that. It's astounding you know the deeper we go into this like wow you know the reality that i perceive that there there's almost no limit to to what's possible we we kind of exploded into very 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 different ways of perceiving life and ourselves and yeah i can i can get kind of lost in the reverie of it and and i just want to kind of bow i just want to put my hands in, in you know bowing to the universe just to this incredible mystery yeah i think um what I love about this approach is it holds that relationship with with life, the universe, whatever we want to call it. Because so I, I come from a, a coaching background now. I work a lot with teams and individuals, and coaching primarily holds that we have internal locus control. You know, we can happen right. to the world, as opposed to the world happening to us. And I love that approach because it really does help people to find agency, and it's also sometimes dismisses the fact that life has its own plans you know (laughs) you might be thinking about a certain path but then life will bring something else along 
And I think this approach allows that that co-creation together. It's not just you and it's not just the universe. There's this this wonderful world relationship happening. And um, I think we're often not acknowledging that and not leaning into that. And this helps us to look towards or turn towards the relationship there. Absolutely. Very, very deeply put. And it is all in the relationship. And the, the Buddha kept pointing that everything, everything, everything is in the relationship. We could say, yeah, between let's say, us and the universe. It is really wonderful, you know, and you can pick up, you know, e- even this, like we're talking, and this is kind of where it starts to spin the mind out a bit, but e- even the ways of looking approach is, in inverted commas, just a way of looking. Like it's not really real either. And through, through these teachings, we see that, that no way of looking is ultimately true. It's like, which, which is helpful in this moment? And, then, you know, coming back to some of the stuff you're saying there, you know, we could choose a way of looking that sees us as having complete autonomy and agency um we could choose a way of looking that feels like you know maybe for those more um spiritually minded or or religious amongst us but everything every moment is you know let's say god's grace is is given to us and things unfold you know outside of our control like just to kind of take two extremes and both of those are completely valid ways of looking and will unfold our experience in different ways. And then there's all sorts of, you know, possibilities in between those two. So it's not to kind of land on one or the other and say, right, this is how I'm going to relate to the world. It's having the flexibilities. Okay, what what happens in this moment, in this day, in this week, if I relate to my life through this lens or through this lens? Incredible exploration, really, really fascinating. Yeah, that holds both. It's not internal locus of control. It's not external locus of control. It's very much both. And um I wonder about this approach in terms of, so it feels like more and more we're getting divisive as a society. It seems like conversations go to a very binary space. And this almost allows maybe a leaning in in a way that often isn't possible right now. Do you feel like this could potentially be a practice that would help us have better conversations when there's conflict as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if if only our... Leaders and politicians, you know, just for a start, were to grasp this idea that you know they're the people that they're up against, for instance, are looking at the world through certain eyes, and that's giving them a certain sense of reality. And they're looking at this way, they're looking at that way. There can just be far more space and compassion and understanding. So, oh, okay, we're actually just perceiving different worlds, and maybe we're we're all acting in the best way we think is possible, you know, with our condition. And rather than fighting up against each other, thinking there is one right way to see the world and this is what's happening, it can just be, yeah, far more collaborative. I think, in fact, what was her name? Danella Meadows. I don't know much about her, but I think she was a kind of systems change uh, or systems thinker. I can't remember the the term she uses, researcher. And I remember she was being mentioned a lot when I was doing some stuff with Extinction Rebellion. And... She, she kind of points out the uh, leverage points where we can change, make big change in, in a system from kind of very small superficial changes and policies and things down to what she saw as the most important and effective way of being able to create change, which, which is exactly this. It's uh, having people understand that no, she didn't use the term way of looking, but something similar, no way of looking is ultimately true. But if, if we can each understand that, then, oh, wow, we can open to other people's perspectives. And that, that's just a very different kind of, you know, relation in politics 
and thinking there's one way and I've got to prove to this other person that my way is that way. It seems to create an alignment at a deeper human level, perhaps. Or maybe it goes deeper than that. Maybe it connects us to the, you know, the, the planet, perhaps, in ways that we're just not really looking right now. But I noticed that, um, so I, I work primarily as a systems coach and something that we hold is that um, all voices are a voice of the system. And that really is the idea that everyone's got a piece of the jigsaw puzzle, but we're not all holding the whole thing. This approach seems to hold that too. You know, not one lens isn't the reality. It's one sort of part of that massive jigsaw puzzle that makes up this wonderful, chaotic, beautiful life. I think that's way more useful as a both an approach for living, but also for leading too. Uh, absolutely. It reminds me of this um, uh, GIF that I was sent uh, on my phone, it, it's uh, I think it's Gene. Is it Gene Hackman? No, not Gene Hackman. The, the guy that plays um, Willy Wonka in the in the Charlie Chocolate Factory film, and it just says he's kind of leaning in with a quizzical look, and it says, "Ah, so your perspective is the only correct perspective in the world." Fascinating. Brilliant. Yeah, I bet it's sad to say, but that is how so many of us are living our lives, or at least certain ideas and opinions that we hold and that's closing us down that's closing us down and we're um not able to let so much in from those spaces it's so understandable why wouldn't we think that the way we're looking at the world is how it is and now that about it's true and so that you know any of us will have strong opinions about the world and what's happening and we just assume well if someone else isn't seeing this then they're wrong and i need to educate them no it's it's quite counterintuitive to think that this other person is actually perceiving a different world to us because of their way of looking, which is also true. It creates a very different meeting space to actually collaborate when we when we can appreciate that. So would you say um, the ways of looking, I don't want to say it's a tool because there's so many different tools within it. <laughs> um, there's toolkits. Does it help to create empathy in individuals because you're suddenly just opened up to the fact that your way isn't the highway? Yeah. So, so, so I think that's a, a huge part of uh, what it can offer. Um, empathy, both for other people's uh, perspectives and ways of looking and therefore behaviours. You know, I, I think of, I, I used to teach in prisons. I, I taught kind of um, mindfulness courses in prisons. And it strikes me with that, you know, we, for, for me, the prisons are a very uh, sad place, not so much scary in my experience, but just sad. You know, a lot of people, I, I only worked with men. So for me, a lot a lot of men who had had very difficult lives, you know, very difficult experiences that, you know, if I were them, if I'd have had the conditions that they'd have faced, it would have been me in prison. You know, uh. just, you know, seeing through um, different lenses rather than just this kind of judging, okay, they've done this bad thing. There might be a, a, a horrendous thing that they've done and kind of just labeling that and judging that bad person. I could put on um, a lens, a way of looking that sees the conditions instead. I can see, you know, where this action has come from, what what's led to this, and in a way, it kind of drains out a lot of the the blame and the judgment, and and it just opens up, you know, empathy and compassion for this person in front of me. And I think what's really important in that isn't to get stuck then in that lens and only see conditions and never be able to hold people accountable for their actions. This is to, to hold both. It's like I, I can look through the way of looking of like, yeah, that this person has committed a crime for which there needs to be, in very commas, punishment or they need to be taken away from society because they're dangerous. So that's seeing that lens. 
and bringing this other, other lens of understanding how or why that's happened. And so that allows us to bring in compassion. So it's like, yes, we can put this person away from society, but then we don't have to treat them like an animal. We can treat them like with compassion. We can see the, the reasons they're there. And I think what this holds as well as paradox, because life isn't this or that, good or bad, right or wrong. And I found myself really tired with mainstream journalism over the last, well, the last decade, but particularly the last five years. It just feels so quick to box people and label things. And it just doesn't hold, it doesn't hold nuance. It doesn't hold paradox. And I, I love what you held there, that it's both. Thank, thank you for bringing in the, the word nuance. That's just say what you were alluding to earlier about the polarization. Um, I mean, both in the, in the media and in our social media, and there being kind of a, a lack of nuance. It's, it's really interesting the kind of the theory behind how we polarize and, and then just get entrenched in, in those views. And I, I, you know, exactly what we're missing now and what would help so much is that is the nuance, is the the color in, in the spectrum. I, th- I feel it's so lacking and so important. And maybe you're about to speak to that a little bit now. <laughs> well, I love that you flagged that because I'm, I'm wondering as well whether. I know we mentioned about the fact that we tend to have more so-called negative lenses if we're not paying attention. But I wonder, as a society, do you think we have some default lenses that we've inherited? And really, we're not looking through that many lenses. We don't have that much diversity in our thought or thinking or or ways of looking. Is that something that you're aware of or that you think might be happening to our, our world and our yeah, our world at large. For sure, and I think I think there's different levels to that because on on one level we do have lots of ways of looking. We might not be conscious of them, but in a way, each emotional state that we have puts us into a different way of looking. We see the world differently. So on one level, we've all got lots of ways of looking, and we're bounced in between them constantly, but not seeing them as such, uh, which is you know confusing and disorienting, etc. But there's absolutely on a kind of bigger, more conceptual level of you know who we are and and what life is and what this means for fun to me and what this situation is and what a human being is i think we've lost so much like we, we, we've kind of been reduced to a um particular scientific paradigm and this isn't to dismiss or belittle science at all that wow what, what, what it's given us and if we take it as the only way only arbiter of what's true for me, that that's uh, so limiting and so limited and, and squashes so much possibility. But there's a word, uh, epistemicide, that my teacher Rob discovered and, and loved, and it really speaks to this. You know, epistemology, the, the philosophy around what we can know, how we know anything. And episte- epistemicide, just the way over you know, the past hundreds of years, ways of knowing the world, valid ways of knowing, have just been killed off we've just not allowed we've kind of been reduced just as this scientific materialist reductionist kind of way of understanding things and then to add another way that we look it seems like the growth lens the the consumer lens is is one that's very powerful and all consuming um both in terms of people not taking care of people but also the planet as you mentioned before and i noticed that often we don't feel like we have another choice you know we have to get the job to earn the certain salary to you know, have the certain life with the house and the kids and then, and it's like, no one's really questioning that. Yeah. <laughs> and I wonder if it's because the lens is just so powerful and it's so ingrained and inherited that it's hard to sidestep and s- sort of choose something else. It, it is. And, that, and that's uh, a problem. Yeah. Uh, it, it's difficult. You know, when we're all stuck in this 
delusion around where uh, happiness comes from, which is in you know one way of looking at what the the issue is here. We're all chasing a certain thing of what we think will bring well-being and security and ease and all of that. It's very, very hard to step out of that. You know, for someone to to really know really deeply that happiness and security in the future and all of that comes from the quality in one in one's heart. I mean, that is so not what we're told growing up, not so not what we think as a as a society. And so we do just keep on the same actions and, you know, yeah, consume, consume, consume. And even though it doesn't bring us the happiness, we don't tend to clock that for some reason. It's uh, it's hard. I, I don't know how to kind of create that shift and, and open up a different idea for people of where to look. Yeah, it, it makes me think of the title of this this podcast, um, The Balcony View. I think those moments in life or those those moments perhaps where we've had an illness or someone's died or we've had a huge life shift, perhaps we lost a job or we've moved country, they can offer us a balcony view. Um, but I feel like this practice can help us step there too. It's like that step back from our life for a moment, you know, where we can be in the ballroom with the emotions, <laughs> with the people, with the experiences, but also have that that wider perspective. Yeah. And I feel like this is such a powerful practice for that that everyday balcony view that I think we need just to check that are we aligned? Is this <laughs> is this in alignment with what I want in my life? Um, does this serve me and you know what brings me happiness? And I think without that, we just end up on the on the path that has been decided for us. That's really well put, and I, I love that phrase, the balcony view, the title of this podcast. I think it's it's interesting. You know, stepping outside of our country, you know, I, I traveled a bit before I uh, kind of knew about climate change. And it's amazing, you know, being outside of one's country and one's life, in a sense, you know, the, the life that we live, the perspective that that brings. And it, just as you say, we can get perspective and think, oh, okay, well, there are different ways of viewing this because, you know, whatever country we're in, they, they live differently. It's like, oh, wow, okay, so this isn't the only way to live. What, how do I want to live? And what is a line? And it, exactly that, I think there's ways of looking approach. I hadn't thought about it like this before, but being able to see that the way that I'm relating to the world is just a way of relating and I can step outside of that can give the same perspective as, you know, going to another country. We, we step outside just on our normal way of relating, um, but just internally rather than having to enact that in the external world. And um, I, I think it's huge gaining that perspective. There's so, so many of us and I think this is such a profound point that you point to. So many of us live underlined lives. You know, we're just kind of battered around by the various conditions in our lives and what society tells us we should be doing. And it's hardly even the space to breathe and reflect on that. It's just, you know, moment to moment to moment, go, 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 go. And, I, you know, part of me wonders if we were all somehow uh, in some magic situation able to really sense in ourselves uh, our values, what's important, how I want to live my life, and have the courage to do that, I suspect we wouldn't have the whole poly crises in the world that we have now. We, we wouldn't have uh, the um, environmental and ecological breakdown. We probably wouldn't have you know, such a ridiculous disparity in, in wealth and problems of inequality. We wouldn't have the same problems with race and oppression. I think there's there's something, you know, when we're really living according to our truest values, it, it just carves open a very different perspective on the world that, that's 
full, in my experience, uh, always full of love and compassion for, for others. It makes me think about that story of the fisherman who fishes in the morning and then goes back and spends time with his family. And then one day a businessman comes along and says, oh, you know, you could get like a group of fishermen to uh, help you out. And then you could run that business. And then by the afternoon, you could go home and play with your family. He's like, but I'm already doing that. And I think so many of us are in that never ending growth cycle, but we're not really sure why. (laughs) And it's hard to step out when everyone around you is doing the same and when everything is pointing to that success, that's the North Star. And so do you find that meditation is a is a space for us to to reflect in the way that you mentioned? Because many of us don't have that much space to stop and just even check, does this feel right? How does this sit in my body? Yeah, absolutely. And there's two things for me there. Like I think about retreats, which sadly most of the time very expensive i mean the retreats tend to sign yeah. they do offer bursaries and really don't want to turn people away because of cost and there are uh charities like freely given retreats that that offer yeah completely free retreats you, know, you give a donation if you can and um, but there's something about just stepping aside from one's life even if it's for a day you know and, and just being in the quietude and i think there's two things there, there's one it's the time to reflect for sure and that you know actually Use use the mind, use the conceptual brain, um, one's own intelligence, and, and think through things and reflect in a way that we don't have time for. But there's also in that in that silence, when we stop trying to work it out, there's an innate, intuitive intelligence and wisdom in our being that if if we just allow, if we just allow that silence, will speak up. That it just doesn't have the chance to in, in the momentum of our lives. It just doesn't have the chance to, to be heard. You know, it can be quite a quiet voice. And I think for me, there's something in that meditation that isn't about working stuff out, but it's just allowing what's already there to, to be heard. And that that can be quite scary, can't it? To to really sit and listen to what's there because in some ways it's looking in the mirror and it's not always like nice to look in the mirror. So what would your advice be to, to someone who perhaps hasn't had the best relationship with meditation and is thinking about stepping into the practice again? Mm. Thank you. Well, there's a couple of things again there. Um, I mean, I would say, firstly, depending on what the difficulties with meditation have been or could be, you know, if there's trauma in the body, for instance, there can be a, a slightly different way of uh, approaching the practice that is really mindful, that we, we don't just want to have a gung-ho approach and, you know, I just want to go into my body, I want to go into my thoughts and just watch them and it'll be fine. Because may- maybe it won't be, you know, actually maybe uh, at its worst, it could be re-traumatizing. And so just having uh, a sensitivity around that and just you know, putting a toe in, stepping back if it's too much, finding some place in the uh, experience that is a good center for attention, which could be the body for some people, it could be the breath, it could be sounds in the environment, that could be a kind of stable anchor. Um, so that there's different ways and, and there's, you know, books and stuff out there around how to practice uh, sensitive to those sorts of experiences. But for most people that might have you know, dabbled in meditation and, and not really found it was what they wanted or what was helpful. My main advice is really to, to you know, if you want to, to, come at it again, but with a real sense of play and experimentation. You know, we can get stuck in quite a rigid sense of, okay, this, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is it. Uh, if I'm not doing that, if I'm not with my breath, if I'm not this, then I'm a failure, then I'm not meditating well. Like we, we kind of set ourselves up for failure by having this kind of rigid idea of, of what it is we're trying to do and, and then you know, not being able to do it 
as we'd like. And for me, that that's one of the biggest things that my teacher Rob instilled in me. It's like, what, what, why do, why do we have to approach it like that? You know, we could, for instance, approach it as you know, we're explorers, explorers of consciousness, explorers of our inner world. And so that allows for so much more uh, creativity. It allows for, for instance, going down a dead end for trying something out and actually not really working. And then rather than berating ourselves saying, oh, I can't meditate. This is wrong. It's like, no, we're exploring. Of course, you're going to come across dead ends. So you, then you come back out, you try something else. Um, and for me, that, that can keep the whole uh, practice alive because you know, approaching a certain way, this really can be and should be fun. It should be interesting. It, it shouldn't just be something you know we think we should do. And if we do, if we sit, if we sit down on the cushion like it's a chore that will make me a better person, uh, then it probably won't unfold very fruitfully. Yeah, if our listeners take away anything from this podcast, I hope it's that. Yeah. That has helped me so much. I spent the last decade fighting meditation, you could say. Yeah. It's been a real love-hate relationship. And I remember in my very early 20s, I went to a, a 10-day side at retreat because it felt like it was something I had to do. And it was really sort of, you know, uh, fists clenched, like, I'm going to do this because I want to put it on my spiritual CV. And um, I dropped out after 26 hours. And, uh, you know, there was always this real sense that I had to do it because this is the thing that good people do. And after working with you and doing the course, I just feel so much more open to it. It's like, this is going to be fun today. I'm going to see what shows up, but it's not this, I'm good or I'm bad. It's right or it's wrong. And that has transformed my practice. And I would say for so many people, they're probably coming at it with a lens of, oh, I have to do meditation this morning or oh, I should do this thing. And how does that then impact your experience of the meditation? Exactly. That's just what I was going to say. I mean, it, it's, and this is where the ways of looking and understanding comes in again. You know, if we, if we do approach meditation in that way as, as a chore and the, the beings and the mind is a bit kind of contracted as we sit down, that's only going to unfold in a certain experience that isn't, you know, open, that, that isn't curious, that doesn't allow the openings that it would do if we if we sat down i mean for instance what i uh, tend to do nowadays is when i sit down to meditate the first thing i do is just allow the acknowledgement really in my body not just the conceptual thing but allow my body to feel that what i'm doing by sitting down meditating is it's an act of kindness and, and i and i you know it might take five seconds for me to align with that it might take two minutes but I, until it is, I don't start my meditation, I, but I sit there and I let it just percolate through the being that what's happening here is an act of kindness to myself and through that to the world. When my body hears that and acknowledges that and feels that and expresses that, then I meditate. And then it opens up very differently. And I think to take it back to the, and the experience off the cushion and in, in our lives, I've noticed that this hasn't transformed my life in sort of big in obvious ways but it's given me those spaces to choose and then that has sort of had those day-to-day sort of one percent shifts that add up and so you know over the past six months I've noticed some huge shifts in my ability to respond as opposed to react and I sometimes notice now that I'm telling this tired story I'm looking through my my day-to-day through this maybe challenges lens right and is that serving me and I think having that choice point that little space that meditation opens up just gives us more more freedom. And do you find that that space opens up even more the more you meditate and the more you understand this in yourself? Precisely that. And I think it's, you know, what you're expressing is so wonderful. Like the, the, the fruits that are coming just from this, this very 
simple idea of, oh yeah, there's some agency here. I can look, I can take away the challenges lens. I can bring in this, you know, it drains some of the reactivity out. Fantastic. And I think that's uh, a huge point that I, I would certainly want to bring across to anyone starting out with this. It's like, it's not a case of, oh, this, this is only really helpful um, when you're really experienced at it and been doing it for years and can, you know, it totally changes your perception of reality and your sense of what a human being is and everything. It's like, no, that, that's, that's possible. That's there. And every little step along the way brings its own liberation, brings its own joy. It's just like, oh, wow, when we've been entrenched in certain ways of looking and relating to the world and you know, just some little nugget changes, the, the freedom that can bring the heart. And of course, then we see, oh, wow, this has changed something. And that gives us more impetus. So I practice more. Oh, what else could open up? And it kind of then snowballs when, when we really start beginning trusting in this process. So yeah, absolutely. Our kind of toolkit to use the phrase um, you put out there just grows and grows and grows and and over time can include more and more ways of looking and ways of looking that go deeper and deeper in transforming uh, yeah our sense of reality and it's all good it's all of its treasure I wonder what it would be like to do this in groups say as a family or as a team around perhaps there's a a challenge at work maybe there's a big reorganization uh, within the department and if you had, say, six lenses that you, you chose specifically to just look through as a group, imagine the different wisdom that could emerge from that kind of conversation mm. that holds these different perspectives. I don't know what this is like to do in those kinds of relationships, but yeah, I imagine it might stimulate different discussions. Uh, I imagine you're right. I mean, it's an alien environment to me, um, a kind of uh, business corporate world. I mean, I'm sure it would make offices more kind of yeah compassionate there'd be more perspective i i kind of am loath to say yes it will make it'll make companies more effective <laughs> it's, it's interesting how these uh you know timeless priceless teachings can be co-opted by the capitalist consumerist default world but oh, yeah this can make us even more effective this can you do this it's like, yes oh, hang on hang on hang on hang on <laughs> it's like yes i'm sure yeah. would make, for me that wouldn't be my intention for wanting to spread the teachings, I guess. That's so true. So maybe it would still be looking through a lens of how can we be more efficient and create more growth as opposed to, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, maybe bringing it back to the family example where there's less, potentially less like higher agendas in place. I just wonder around some of those challenges that show up for all families, having different lenses to look through as a group, particularly if there's some tired conversations that have been going round and round and round. I think the Gottmans say in every relationship, 69% of our problems are perpetual, uh, meaning that they're not going away. Yeah. And I just wonder how this might just help us to open up different parts of ourselves and different wisdoms within that relationship. It, may, it makes me think actually, and we'll bring it into the family, it makes me think of the way that actually in a lot of my circles, I'm thinking of actually Extinction Rebellion um, a few years ago, particularly, you know, when we would have a meeting uh, off and off online, not always. And the first thing that we would do before we got into any business is we would check in, we'd say how we're doing. And, you know, you could see that as just a nice thing to do. But actually, for me, that, that's a really important part because then I see, okay, well, this person's feeling tired because they haven't slept whenever. This person's angry because this has happened. And I know that that's going to impact what they say and how they feel, how they receive what is said. And then, you know, so it'd be the same in the family if we, if we know that, okay, well, this person didn't sleep last night. It's like the frame of mind that they're in and what they're saying is going to be very different to if they did. And so we, you know, we, we um, relate to them and, and let's say judge them differently. And it's like, 
you know, I, I know, for instance, when I'm frustrated and tired, the sorts of thoughts that I have and how I see the world isn't how I would like to. And I, I kind of just know to dismiss them. It's like, I know that I have tired, frustrated mind and I just don't listen to myself. I just let the mind do its thing. And I just don't give it any attention because I, I know it's coming from a certain place. And if we can see that in someone else and see where their thoughts are coming from, rather than just thinking, oh, this, this is them and this is how they're thinking and making it very concrete. It's like, no, this is my child expressing themselves after a sleepless night with this going on in their life. You know, it, ju it just, um, yeah, breathes a lot more space and compassion to me. I love what you're saying there. It, it speaks to, so in, in systemic team coaching, we talk about meet the system where they're at yeah. um, or meet the system where it's at because the system could be nature. It doesn't have to necessarily be a group of people. Boom. But so often we're task focused that we forget about the relationship. And this seems very relational, this practice. It seems to bring us into relationship with ourselves, but then also it gives us a sense of, What's going on for other people too? And my gosh, if anything, we need more, more relationship-orientated leadership in our lives, both in our, our personal and professional spaces. Can you imagine that? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mark, this has been the most fascinating discussion. I'm certain you've opened up whole ideas and ways of looking in our listeners today. So thank you so much for bringing this to us. Uh, a real pleasure to, to have a conversation. Thank you, Katie. And take care, Mark. We'll speak soon, no doubt. A huge thanks to Mark for that fascinating discussion around the ways of looking approach. Here are my key takeaways. Whatever is in our hearts and minds changes our experience of life. So if we approach a situation with kindness, generosity or love, our experience of the situation will be different than if we approach it with fear, worry or sadness. It doesn't change the situation, it impacts how we relate to the situation. How we relate to the world impacts our experience of our lives. That changes the experience and gives us a different felt sense. Most of us have a voice of the inner critic in our heads that is critical and unkind. And that is also a way of looking. When that becomes an entrenched way of being, we can fail to see that the inner critic is also a way of looking and that we can choose to look through a different lens to shift our sense of reality. Our way of looking shapes our perception of the world and our perception of the world shapes our way of looking. They are in a dance and this approach helps us to appreciate the principle of relationship in our lives. Like for example, the relationship between us and the universe. The Ways of Looking Framework is an approach for working with your inner landscape. How might a different way of looking impact the way you experience yourself and your life? Thank you for listening to The Balcony View. For more articles, audio articles and podcasts, please visit balconyview.substack.com.